Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On this episode, we're going to explore the art of Mike Nelson. The British artist, born in 1967, has a big, bold new survey show at London's Hayward Gallery. And after enjoying bounteous art world acclaim for some two decades, representing Great Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2011, and showing work at the Lyon, Sydney and Istanbul Biennales, as well as exhibiting at the world's finest galleries, it seems, in terms of home turf, about time too. Nelson works in installations, some of which are sculptural, others seemingly exercises in world-building, at once weird and unsettling, as well as all too familiar. They could be dystopian ideas about our near future, or examples of forks in the road that humanity hasn't quite chosen. But bear in mind that this new show is called Extinction Beckons. Nelson's materials are ordinary or hyper-ordinary, discarded and salvaged machinery, building materials, doors, pipes, the ephemera of small business and light industry. They're sometimes ghostly, possessed of a memory at which the viewer can only guess, but have fun guessing at. While we might suppose that some of his work is tantamount to a warning about a world heading to a moral and actual desertification, some others are humorous, fictive, kind of ridiculous. Nelson's work is not didactic, and neither are his explanations for it. Today, then, we'll hear from Nelson himself, fresh from the exhausting installation of his Hayward show, and we'll be back here in the studio with two guests, well-versed in the Nelsoniverse, Francesca Gavin and Ossian Ward. But first, let's hear from my conversation with Mike himself. We're standing here amongst these sort of decommissioned industrial and agricultural machines. You first showed these in the Davine Galleries at Tate Modern. I mean, they look wonderful. They look wonderful here in these in this top room at the Hayward Gallery. But I wondered about this theme, you know, wh- whether you riff off the objects or whether you think, right, the next show is going to be about the sort of sadness of, of industrial decline, perhaps, and the people that, that, that work these machines, whether the, whether the design comes before the artefact, as it were. Yes, I'd say it does, even though sort of like a, it's a, obviously a symbiotic relationship in that the, the matter, the material that I collate around me is informing, you know, in the things I look at, the things I see. But it might be also informed by fiction, by what I read, or it might be by a radio story, or it might be by, a, you know, a sensation or a smell or anything really that could almost give you some sort of sense of what you uh, want to make the work about. So, yeah, the normal process is a space, a place, a time, a reference to a, a politic, perhaps a political situation, a, a reflection upon what's kind of happening or how you understand the world, sort of like a, as opposed to kind of writing a, a critical essay or, as, or, or even a piece of fiction or articulating it on a podcast. I articulate it through material matter. It's kind of just what I've always found more the language language of my choice ultimately i think you know having taught a lot at art schools uh, i think people you find at art art school often the ones that perhaps i find the most interesting are those people that are naturally sort of like that way inclined i mean as a child i think my parents always were very impressed they thought i was very i was very literary because i was always looking at books as a small child but i think they realized after a while that i was just only looking at the pictures i think it's something which has been very underrated or devalued especially by the current kind of government you know the the fact that there's intelligence that can be 
articulated through the eye, through the hand, through the ear, sort of like a, that isn't a traditional academic sort of like a articulation. And I think, you know, the British Art School has, in its traditional way, sense, shall we say, sort of like, uh, has been a place where, you know, people perhaps with different ways of understanding the world have, have expressed and found a voice. And I think that's been of great value to Britain when you look at its uh, cultural, musical, artistic sort of legacy that it's left. And I think it's been, yeah, somewhat undermined at the moment. So, Yeah, I mean, walking through the labyrinth you've created in the one of the downstairs galleries here, Mike, as well, it seems like, it seems sadly like we're walking through some of London and England's housing stock as well with that place. I mean, there's a bit of a sort of sense of camaraderie about walking through it with people and you bump into people and you, it, there's something funny about it but there's something very sad about it is what, what about what about for yourself putting that together and now walking through those corridors and rooms and you know, tricky spaces well that's a work from 20 odd years ago 2001 called the deliverance and the patience and it it was a equation of a literary sort of like structure uh, to a spatial structure it was heavily referential to cities of red night by william burroughs and his reference to the idea of pirate utopias and the title itself takes its title from two boats that were constructed after the shipwreck of the sea venture in the 17th century off Bermuda, where the people being transported, often kind of criminals and sort of like forced labor, to work in the colonies in Virginia, were somehow found themselves on the island of Bermuda, where they built a community which kind of undermined the hierarchies, a traditional society that existed on the ship. And many of them found a very happy life until they built these two other ships, the Dillance and the Patience, to take them onto the colonies where many would die at a young age. So I think that work was tapping into that story, but also into the story of pirate utopias and the idea of the that the shipping structure of the 17th century could be seen in many ways as the first sort of like global communication structure, you know, both with merchant shipping, shipping the navies and the sort of pirate ships of the, of the day were the one things that sort of like linked the whole world. But also there was these kind of famous sort of like colonies, one on, Ma on Madagascar that uh, Burroughs talks about of Libertatia, uh, with uh, the doomed sort of colony of uh, Captain Mission. But it, within it, Burroughs talks about a potential that during a time of consolidation of capital and capitalism in the 17th century, they, these offered a, a, a viable alternative to capitalism or a belief system, a structure of society, which I found really in, intriguing. So when I was making the work in Venice at the time, it was a, a moment at the very beginning of huge migrations of people across the Mediterranean from North Africa, coming up into sort of like Italy. So this idea of like, you know, master and slave, sort of like a, this idea of sort of like the, the strata of society sort of, and how it's been structured for so long in terms of the West and what we used to call the developing world, etc. It was very much an idea. So this, all these ideas were feeding into this sort of like strange sort of a, a incarnation that you went downstairs. I mean, it's amazing that, that you said that your best mode of expression is making these works. Some of them obviously heavily riff off, off the, the learning you found in fiction and speculative fiction especially i suppose in a certain respect do you ever get i mean some of these works now they've they've maybe come from an idea in a book they're a physical manifestation you've taken that idea for a further walk i feel like i want to read your writing on your own work they feel like they could be turned back into books or films sometimes. i did write a short story during covid for a, a collection on called the new abject on for Comma Press and i wrote a short story about my studio sort of which is very much about the idea of 
the commodification of matter, of material. I turn to language to write, but every time you sort of like pick up your phone and it's throwing you adverts because it's sort of the algorithms are kind of catching you out, you know, even language is taken away from us, sort of like uh, the freedom of language. And that struck me as a very bleak vision. He's, he's smiling as he says it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's fiction at the moment. <laughs> That was Mike Nelson. And now to our commentators. Francesca Gavin is a critic and curator and Ossian Ward is head of content for the Listen Gallery. Welcome, peeps. Lovely to have you in the programme. Well, well, I wrote welcome, peeps, into the the, uh, intro there and thought I'd say it out loud because we're all kind of quite close buddies around this this desk. And you guys, fortunately for the listeners of this programme, are, as advertised, experts in the Nelson universe. Ossie and I bumped into you in room one of uh, of that show at the at the press view um, last week. Um, was this was this sort of familiar territory as someone that knows Nelson's work very well? Yeah, I mean, déjà vu is one of those things you get at Mike Nelson. You get where have I I've been here before? But <laughs> we literally had because part of the whole deal with Mike Nelson's work is that. Uh, they're not exactly the same every time he puts them back together. So he keeps a lot of these works in storage. And so the first room where I met you was a storage room, kind of lit in this gloomy, red, gloaming light, which, you know, kind of made you think that something was suspicious. But actually, it was just probably how he stores his work. <laughs> yeah. But that was a, a throwback to not just one show at Venice. So he'd, he's shown twice at Venice, representing Britain, but also showing uh, off-site one of the works that we walked through in the second room. But then uh, before that, some of that work was taken from an Istanbul biennial and an Istanbul residency that he'd been on. So that was that moment where I told you it felt like we had in the aftermath of a Turkish earthquake. You know, we were literally in the detritus of all this stuff that had been, you know, fallen off of buildings. And that was quite powerful and a weird thing to be thinking of at that time. But they come from different iterations of things he's done. And I think the first one was... Uh, an Istanbul residency where he said he kind of created a show for dogs because there were stray dogs around and he just kind of made this work. <laughs> Didn't and know how no many other there. people were going to come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Venice and now Haywood Gallery. So they have different iterations. It feels like you've been there before, but also because the spaces have that emptiness that allow you to reimagine, well, what was that? Or where was... I just came through one door. Why am I in the same space or is it a different space? There's that kind of feel as well, kind of dread and deja vu. Yeah. And we'll come back to some of the sort of cyclical nature and the recycling of some of his products and projects and ideas. But Francesca, maybe you can put us into the Nelson universe a little bit. I put some info obviously in that introduction for listeners. But where where does he sit in the kind of in the British art scene, in the international art scene? He's someone that seems slightly um, until a big show like this or his Venice Biennale show of someone that was slightly on the cusp of things compared to our big name British artists, perhaps. I mean, He's a really interesting artist in a kind of international perspective. He had a very well-received show at Turin at OGR a few years ago. Or was it Castello d'Orelli? One of them. One of the Torino locations. (laughs) Um, And he's shown at Creative Time in New York. And he has had some international attention, definitely shown a lot of international biennials. But there is something very interesting about his language that really emerged at a particular time in the late 90s, early 2000s, that kind of invented the entire concept of what installation art could be. So Mike Nelson's work is so ephemeral, it's not really product. It's not like 
the hot thing you stick on your wall. I mean, <laughs> it's a giant reused industrial takeover in the Tate Britain. It's that kind of level. And he's not a maker of additions and things. He's a very uncommercial artist in that sense. Yeah, right? but every once in a while you can be really lucky and get like a poster or a print. There's a pr- there's an edition of 30 print that comes with the Hayward Show, which okay. is a photograph, in fact, of Room 1 in its red, weird, eerie glow. I thought I saw Rossian uh, walking off with a plank under his arm. Mm. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's what's well, actually part of the ephemeral nature of what he does, this reconfiguration, this repetition, this... I mean, for me, it's very much about narrative, and we can talk about that later. But I think it makes him kind of like a weird, unique outsider in a system where everyone respects him. He's very much an artist's artist. I've never heard a bad word from an artist about his work. There's huge respect about how he transforms quite complex theory, political ideas, concepts around literature, sci-fi, narrative, structure. I mean, he's... You can go into these spaces and they feel like weird, abandoned, like, nightmares. But the reality is he's incredibly precise where everything goes. Let's just... Uh, we'll stay with you, Fran, just for this bit, because it's... Uh, uh, Dan, Box, Dan Fox has got an essay in the catalogue that accompanies The Hayward Show, and he was sort of saying he has trouble knowing what to call it. Are they tableau? Are they installations? Are they sculptures? What are, are they haunted houses, he even sort of says. And then he says, no, that's a bit too kind of end of the pier or something. What What are we calling M- Mike Nelson's work? Personally, I think they're like dreams. Uh-huh. Do you know when you have dreams where you feel... I've had a lot of dreams, particularly when I in the old days when I used to work in, uh, like, a, that I'd be stuck in a school that I couldn't get out of and you're going from room to room to room and you're Living dream. the dream. Yes, and being <laughs> stuck in these situations, it's very much also like platform computer games or it's very much like Borges or Calvino. But I think it's very much like being in these dreamlike scapes that in this case are made just for being viewed by us. We're entering his strange imagination, his strange multiplicity of stories in this multisensory way. And so, yeah, so for me, it's very much like, what does it feel like to stand inside of someone's dream? Yeah. That's Mike Nelson. There are bits of it like it's almost like the planned view of a dream or the planned view of some sort of computer game that you're trying to find your way. <laughs> you're trying to find your way out of. Um, so what are the themes, Ossian, that he's he's riffing on? We've kind of we sort of mentioned dystopia and bits and bobs in the introduction. But what for you are the are, are, are the kind of stories he's he's weaving? Yeah, I mean they're myriad and they're as many as you want them to be. You know, I was th- thinking back to another one of the essays where they, uh, I think it was the same writer called him a realist sculptor, and he's not. I mean, it's all one to one scale. It's all there. It's all as it was. Most of this stuff is reclaimed, found, bought in, you know, thrift stores or in um, junk shops, but. It's there, it, it's real, it's old, it's got pattern, it's got age, but it's surreal because you don't quite know where you are or what you're doing. My, my favourite Mike Nelson story, which I always trot out, was at the ICA show. I was in this amazing room full, filled with all these things on the wall, these tools, beautifully placed everything, went out the next door, found that was a fire alarm, um, went off. I'd gone out of the building and I was just in the technician's cupboard. I wasn't in the Mike Nelson show. So there are... The spinal tap sort yeah, of story. Kind of gone beyond the <laughs> Nelson show into another Nelson universe. But he he says that all the time. He says people come to me and say, oh, I love that space. He was like, that wasn't my space. That You just made that up. It didn't exist. Or that wasn't part of the show. So I think... The fire escape. So I the think way. there's a really interesting theme about where the art begins and doesn't begin because you know, that that used to be a hoary old um, topic for the Turner Prize. Oh, lights going on and off, you know, that sort of thing. 
But actually, where does the work begin and not begin? And and like Fran said, it's very specific. It's actually very controlled. So it may look like there's no control. And when you hear that he's remade it from bits found everywhere, it sounds like he's not exerting his control. But we are absolutely in his Mike Nelson experiment. <laughs> I mean, I remember I interviewed him once and he was talking about the fact that the first time I ever met him, that when you see his work, it may not resonate with you, but a year later you'll have an experience and the work exists in your memory and then it fits. Like, for example, no one goes into a minicab office. I mean, we don't anymore anyways. But in the days when we went into minicab offices, all of them are Mike Nelson artworks. Yeah. So it's this extension of the borders between life and art completely disappear. It makes you rethink, like, reality in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah. and all the Library of Babel stuff is true because there's also another smaller show on at Matt's Gallery, which they've just reopened, of this big library. And it's actually just old uh, tourist guides, old rough guides. There might even be an old monocle in there. Who knows? But, you know, <laughs> old kind of... Um, guides to countries that have changed completely like you know you look at these don't have the same name 1995 even, or the same guide yeah. to <laughs> syria it doesn't exist anymore and like the same walking through this show there's like a glimpse of sai baba on the corner and you're thinking well that was done in 2001 sai baba had you know gone from cult status to sex pest or whatever you know in between so there's nostalgia but it's very pointed nostalgia even his own space he's upstairs he's made a recreation of his own studio circa whatever it was 2002 but there's so much in there so much i love that depth. that work yeah you know there's like as obvious homage to all his favorite writers and jules verne and all these people in there but there's also kind of jokes humor like self-deprecation He's never in the work, but he's also put himself right in the centre. It's very clever. I mean, another ongoing trope in all of Nelson's work is this underlying politics. Like, for example, in the recreation of the modern Oxford um, sand installation filled with tyres that's based on Robert Smithson, and you go inside, but there's like shell oil drums, like even the work that you're referring to that's at Matt's gallery off-site, mm. that also is very much an indica- a reflection of the internal concept of the inability to travel during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There's always a political undercurrent in everything, and I think even the title of this exhibition, Extinction Beckons, <laughs> I mean, truly has a political undertone to it, but he doesn't ram the politics down you. He just hints at how much the political is part of our general wider this you know existence. So we mentioned, and we mentioned sort of, we hinted at nostalgia, and I feel like he's an artist that is kind of I don't know. He's hugely interested in the concept of it and exceptionally wary of it. I mean, he's sort of said that we we said in the introduction again. His work isn't didactic; it's not explicitly political, but he's sort of he's doing a subtle dance with ideas of nostalgia, obsolescence. As we mentioned, he's kind of like the decline of small businesses, like minicab offices, but also large industries, um, like the work that went into Asset Strippers, which was originally at the Devine Gallery as part of Tate Britain, um, which was a work that I found really moving when I first saw it there. These these kind of big industrial machines that were used f- to make some of the products that were sold to some of the countries which were then kind of pillaged in a way to make some of these galleries in the first place. There was a sort of cyclical element to these things, but nonetheless, it was sort of profoundly beautiful and kind of moving with the pattern of men's hands that had been using them up till only a year previously or something. So he plays with all these things. Where does he sit on the nostalgia obsolescence sort of scale? Where Where is he on that? Because I'm sure he's wary of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about it now because he talks about those works, asset strippers, 
um, almost in terms of his own practice now. He's stripping his own works back and remaking them. So indeed, although a couple of collections do own his work, like the Tate have this big work, Coral Reef, this kind of labyrinthine series of rooms, um, and there's a version of that here, Deliverance and Patience, which is a similar set of never-ending doors that come back on yourself and you're continuously being led through. Then there's like the John Malkovich half space where you're kind of in between floors <laughs> and then you bust out the top of the whole structure and you can see some more detritus sat on top, old bits of carpet and bar stools and all the rest of it. It's so, un under my bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, just, in case, <laughs> just in case anyone's got a Henry Hoover handy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, so he's playing with his own nostalgia. With So he wouldn't call this a retrospective or a survey show because he's like, what would that even look like mm. with my work? And they change each time. So I don't think he's precious about it, but he lives with these objects. I mean, they're things that have age, pattern, interest, grace, you know, uh, kind of problematic because they're old or... But, you know, he likes them. He preserves them. He works with them. And also, when we think about our set strippers, but even like the very early work in this show, Amnesiacs, where he had this fantasy biker gang, and you'll see like this is an ongoing trope. They kind of are periodelic, I think is the word. They look like little characters. Oh, They've got little faces. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. like a sponge looks like a face, yeah. a giant, you know, steel, rusty covered, like, Industrial material looks like has googly eyes, kind of thing. There's there is humor, <laughs> yeah. and this kind of humanness yeah. in things that are kind of lacking in all of the human. It's a really interesting tension. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting if you ever get a Mike Nelson catalog or a book, and there's he's done numerous books that are made up out of other books. It's very, very much like influenced by this kind of he'll like cut up Jules Verne and Stanislaus Lem and Borges and put them all together chapter by chapter into a whole other book. He's very much into like a, a fragmented form of narrative. Yeah. So when you think about the humor and all of that, this kind of nonsensical nature of the work, it's also really kind of about rethinking literary theory. Yeah, his the catalogue for this show at the Hayward is as textural as it is textual, right? I mean, it, it's it's a nice it's a nice artefact. And yeah, this riffing off Borges, and he mentioned Burroughs, I think, when we when we chatted to him, and J.G. Ballard, probably Ursula Le Guin, all these kind of dystopian science fiction, speculative fiction kind of novelists. Are they kind of, do you think they're front, front and centre? I mean, he, he talks interestingly about trying to make artworks a bit like how a book works in his head, plotting things out. And maybe this is where these kind of impossible to get through, these kind of tricky um, mental mazes come from in his work, perhaps. But I think it's also subcultural. It's not necessarily, like, high literature. It's like, you know, <laughs> 1960s... Is that, is that how I couched it? Well, High books, high know, arts. Have you guys met? You should hi. go out one day. <laughs> go on a date. But it's more like, you know, it's kind of pulp at yeah. the same time. It's, like, kind of a little bit grimy and trashy mm. with it. You know, it's... And I think, actually, the subcultural is another thing that really yeah. comes up here. All the humour and lightness and the kind of grittiness makes it sound like he's not... But he, you know, one of my favourite installations he ever did was at the Whitechapel showing other works from a collection on this raft. It was like the raft of Medusa. He's, he knows what he's doing. Like, there's Brancusi in here. There's Robert Smithson, as you mentioned. There's Joseph Cornell. There's, like, Arta Povera, Keenholz, Paul McCarthy. They're all in there. You know, mm. he he's aware of art history as well. So it's not just, like, you know, knocking stuff together and seeing what happens. It's very 
And that's in the background, you know, trying not to let his influences come out too much. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. How much do his works seem finished and how much do they seem in flux, considering they're made of things that had a meaning and now have a separate meaning? They're, made, you know, they're, they're bits of ephemera that are being utilised often rather than purpose-made, especially made you know, pieces of art, as it were. Does their meaning change through time, as, as taking an old machine and putting it on a pedestal might do? Or, or are they, is their meaning set? I mean, that's really interesting. If you take Deliverance and Patience, the big central installation, there are moments in it that, that are definitely referencing, let's say, forms of worship. It was made during the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. There are definitely a lot of like sweatshop references. The title itself is based on this really crazy story about two ships of basically like criminals who go to Bermuda, want to set up a utopian society there, can't end up going to Virginia. There's definite slavery references and all of that and colonialism. He's not unafraid of all of that. It's definitely all embedded. So we're looking at it. You can come at it with the politics of that time, but then it still resonates now. But let's say in a different way, we're going to be bringing the next, the past 20 years of updated yeah. politics and layering and it that, on top of that. That sand, that, 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 that installation with the, the sort of wrecked hut in the sand is, is very Ozymandias as well, isn't it? I mean, talk about the, the end of civ- civilizations and things like that and dreams. Yeah. Also, it couldn't be in a better place. The Haywood is perfect for it. I mean, you've got brutal work, brutal building, and the last piece, the kind of finale, are, the, are these bits of um, iron rebar and in the middle of which, like this grid, never-ending grid, are these weird concrete heads made from those same like clown masks and sort of robber masks, yeah, which are funny. Quite sort of Bruce Nauman, is but it? yeah, Bruce yeah. Nauman. So he's in there. You know, there, there's a lot going on, and I think they're also like comedy self-portraits. Him with the mask, or him as a biker gang, or you know, what's the fictional undertow? But they're, you know, that's quite a sort of. They're all statements as well. He doesn't do things lightly. You know, even the little bonfire in the corner with little um, bits of red plastic Mm. looking like a fire you know there's always some sort of transformation going on it's not just showing an old door after another old door there's something that he's done in between that kind of creates a a mood or an atmosphere so we've talked there's a lot going on with Mike Nelson's work and it's it's there is such deep learning in it but he also has a kind of he talked a little bit about this in his in his little speech on on that opening day that he's quite wa- a lot of his work riffs on being wary about theory, despite him being a he's a practitioner and a teacher. I think at uh, at Kingston, does that does that seem disingenuous, or is that make the work and think about what it means later? Don't get too bogged down in theory. Um, I'm unschooled in this, so I must defer to the experts, Francesca. I mean, I think. You know, one of my favourite works in this show is a good example that there is kind of a personal intimacy in everything he does too. There's an amazing piece which is a sleeping bag filled with rubble and this was an ongoing thing he's used, basically made for a kind of ignored space and it's very much referring to death and homelessness and actually the death of a friend of his that he's had ongoing sleeping bag references to throughout his work. And for me, that's actually something very personal and human in that and kind of, I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor for depression, actually, in a weird way. <laughs> so it's not lacking in, it's not just theory. There's there's a person in this. It's just, there's so many layers to unpick. You can bring your own stuff to it yeah. without him forcing his intimacy onto us. Yeah, and he talks about the idea that that pulp literature or those ballads or those people he was reading was a way in for him to those kind of theorists. He wasn't really just focusing on, you know, 
hardcore philosophy or hardcore theory. He got it through reading literature and understanding it in a different way. So he's similarly kind of creating a journey for us to go through. It's not obviously based on anything. But I think he also can turn, you know, like the most mundane travel agent slash gambling den into some kind of rich tapestry of somewhere. But it, they, they also change, you know, they're, they're not static. Like entropy was the big thing for Smithson. Everything must die. Everything must go. Extinction beckons. But yet he, he's recreating stuff. So there's still a bit of hope, light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I know it doesn't feel like that when you're walking around with <laughs> 50 people in little crawl spaces. But I feel like there is a a rejuvenation at the end of it all. There are some green shoots amongst this sort of industrial wasteland in a way. That's how it feels to me too. I I found parts of it kind of quite moving as much as you can see. Seeing someone's brain tick over is one thing, but I found it quite funny and charming as well. And you're right, it suits that space like nothing else at, at the Hayward Gallery. Thank you both very much indeed for your thoughts on Mike Nelson. The show is called Extinction Beckons. It's on at London's Hayward Gallery until the 7th of May. Our experts were Francesca Gavin, of course, and Ossian Ward. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chongu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 